0: Well, let's pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. A reading from the Song of Songs, also called the Song of Solomon. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. We rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. The word of the Lord. Believe it or not. Um, well, Paul McCartney, the well-known philosopher, psychologist, and cultural analyst, once observed... You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. I look around me and I see it isn't so. So he has a point, even if his particularly silly love song is about as deep as a sidewalk puddle. Uh, We all love love songs and we all have our favorites. Uh, One of my wife's favorite is The Look of Love and stop me if I start singing it. Uh, The version by Diana Krall, and if you've ever heard that version, that will be the one you will always remember uh, and will be stuck in your head, even though it was first done by uh, Dusty Springfield way back in the early 60s, and then redone by Diana Warwick, Dionne Warwick. Um, I have a few favorites myself, most of them pretty old. These are some of the newer ones. The Nostalgic Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer. Uh, I really do like that song. Truly, Madly, Deeply. Yes, that's a silly little love song, too. By the one-hit wonder, Savage Garden. There's an old Art Garfunkel song called All I Know. Does anybody know that one? If you know that one, it ages you. Uh, But my all-time favorite love song is probably one you've never heard of. It's an obscure song called Today that was on Jefferson Airplane's Surrealistic Pillow album from 1967. Um, And it's almost mystical. Of course, the album is called Surrealistic Pillow. So love songs, good ones anyway, evoke in us feelings of wistfulness, longing, sometimes desire. The deepest, most profound, and most influential love song of all time truly is the Song of Solomon also called the Song of Songs. So I'll move back and forth between those, and sometimes I'll just call it the Song. Uh, song of Songs is just the way Hebrews de- Hebrew does superlatives. They don't have a very or most or an er or an est. Uh, it's it's that you repeat the word, and that means it's really good. So it means the greatest or finest or best of songs. And it really is a song. It's lyrical poetry that was intended to be sung. Though We're not sure of the original context for its performance. Um, there's an Old Testament scholar, Tom Gledhill, who has a commentary on... Song of Songs, he writes, It was probably sung as entertainment at local celebrations of the various harvest festivals, accompanied by dancing at a village wedding, sung as court entertainment at the royal palace in Jerusalem, or at happy family reunions or gathering. All that makes sense, though we don't really have any hard evidence for it. It came to be associated and still is associated with and read at Passover, but that was not until literally centuries later. And it was certainly not the song's original purpose. Uh, Out of the entire canon of Scripture, and I'm including Ecclesiastes in this assessment, the song is unique and probably the most unusual song. Ecclesiastes, I think, would take second place. Like the book of Esther, the Song of Songs nowhere mentions God. Uh, It also doesn't mention anything religious. There's no prayer. uh, There's no religious ceremonies. The temple is not mentioned. Nothing. Uh, unlike Esther, however, where the providence of God is clearly present in the background. If you've read the book of Esther, you know what I'm talking about. The, it, it's like the Lord of the Rings. Well, it, it's, not, it's like it in this one respect. The Lord of the Rings doesn't mention God either, but providence is obvious in the background of it uh, everywhere. Um, unlike Esther, where the providence of God seems clearly present in the background, The song seems wholly human, uh, almost secular, not secular. Secular is virtually the denial of God. Uh, Solomon, on the other hand, really shines with a beauty that's like the Garden of Eden, a connection which I'll mention again in a few moments. Like the books of the law and like the book of Proverbs and later the Apostle Paul in the Old Testament when he gave his vice to Congregations embedded uh, in the uh, sexual sin of pagan cultures. The Song of Songs is concerned with human sexual desire and behavior. Unlike those texts, however, the song has no warnings about the the dangers of unrestrained sexuality uh, and the need for self control, which are really important things. I'm, not going to say they're not they're very important Uh, and I'm sure Solomon wouldn't deny it if he were here today but that's not what the song is about Uh, rather the song is an exuberant celebration of the joy and passion of love and physical intimacy so what are we to make of this most excellent of love songs As uh, with the other studies in the Book of Wisdoms, we're going to be studying this thematically. Uh, This is one book, um, and even more so than Ecclesiastes, where verse by verse, uh, it would be like trying to understand uh, the forest by looking very carefully at all the little trees that really wouldn't work it's not a bad idea if you are studying it in detail to understand it and then present it but to get the overall picture at at, at most you would go uh, section by section we're going to go theme by theme and i'll get to those major themes in a few moments um, and at, as with the other books it's not going to be a complete exposition even thematically, uh, but more of a guide for your own reading. And and I would encourage you, of course, to go ahead and read it, Um, and and I'm hoping this will help you understand it more. Uh, This morning, we're going to start by answering these introductory questions. These introductory questions. Oh, forgot to put the little remote in. Thank you. So uh, these introductory questions. Who wrote the song and when did he write it? I'll be blessedly brief in that remark, but uh, those remarks... I do believe it's important to know that the Bible and even some of the traditional understandings of the Bible, though we don't take them as, as gospel... Or is inerrant. It's important to be able to trust the word of God to be what it says it is, and to actually uh, be something worth putting our faith in. So we'll cover that. Uh, what is the song? Uh, it's been taken as a lot of things, and still is that that it isn't. But we'll take it for what it is. What is the structure of the song? What are the main themes of the song, and what are the purpose and the message of the song? That last is sort of a uh, foreshadowing of the conclusions we'll come to at the end. Uh, Like the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the writer of Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon is not named. The first verse where it says Solomon's Song of Songs does not in and of itself indicate uh, a Solomonic authorship. Uh, it is like the ascription, although this is, this is in the Scripture. The ascriptions the in Psalms are not. You know the little headings where it says a Psalm of David? Except, those were added later. Some of the Psalms of David are Psalms written by David. Some of them are Psalms about David. And I think some of them are Psalms to, to celebrate David. So uh, even though it does not mean necessarily that he wrote it, Uh, The song is traditionally ascribed to Solomon, and Solomon died around 930 B.C., so if he wrote it, he did it in the 10th century B.C. And there are several good reasons for accepting Solomon as the author, and I'll go over some of those quickly. Uh, First, the supposed linguistic evidence for a date later than Solomon is very weak. Without going into detail, you can thank me later. I'll just note that many of the words that supposedly reflect a late date have been shown by later scholars to fit better with the 10th century. There are supposedly Persian loan words, Aramaism, things like that, Um, but they really do fit more with this time of Solomon than the time supposedly concluded by earlier scholars. Um, Second, the song has many similarities to Egyptian love poetry of about 1300 to 1100 BC, some of which is fascinating. Um, It's always interesting to compare uh, other ancient sources. Uh, Solomon, and really only Solomon, was in a position to have known and been influenced by such poetry. Uh, It does not resemble poetry from a later date. And for it to, one last thing I'll say in that, to, to have it resemble that kind of poetry and then say to have it written hundreds of years later what would be what we called an archaism. though so a poet today were trying to write a Shakespearean sonnet in the form of Shakespeare. Um, we would notice it right away was that that's not how people write poetry these days. And someone could tell if we civilization lasts a thousand years that if they find something that uh, looks and smells like something written during Shakespeare time and it reads like it It might very well have been, particularly if it was ascribed to Shakespeare, despite all the conspiracy theories. Uh, Third, the internal evidence for Solomon as the author uh, is the inclusive references to the plant and animal life of Israel and the ambiance of wealth and luxury throughout. There really is that, although there are pastoral and rural scenes too. But from beginning to end, you have the interspersing of those two. This also fits Solomon, who, according to First Kings 4.33, described plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He also taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Uh, Solomon's wealth and luxury were also proverbial. He was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth, First 1 Kings 10.23 says. So as I said with the authorship of Ecclesiastes, we should dismiss tradition only when it's absolutely necessary. So if it looks like Solomon and it talks like Solomon and everybody back then said Solomon wrote it, probably Solomon wrote it. So we'll leave it at that. Um, does anybody have any questions about that? About um, Sometimes the, 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 the question of that is, well, what difference does it make? Not an absolute amount in this case because, again, the author is not named. But tradition there has never been any other tradition until modern times that anybody but Solomon wrote it. And to say, for example, that it's post-exilic, that means it came after Israel's exile, is usually part of a, a minimalist approach to the history of Israel, the authorship, the canonicity, and even the inspiration of Scripture. So it's like one domino, in my opinion, uh, establishing the truth of these uh, texts. If you, if you start with not doing that, even though it might seem like a small domino, we all know what happens when you knock over dominoes. Um, and if you don't, there's a lot of YouTube videos about them, I, I believe. So uh, what is the song, then? Well, first of all, let's talk about what it is not, because there's probably been more said about uh, stuff trying to explain it that's not what it's about than there has been trying to explain it. Uh, Although, uh, at least from commentaries and Old Testament scholars these days, mostly the approach is correct. Uh, Let's look at what it's not, though some have said so. First, the song is not an allegory. This was the most popular in both Jewish and Christian teachers literally for thousands of years. And uh, I believe this surely had more to do with some embarrassment about the unapologetic sexual content than anything actually in the song. Again, comparing it to Lord of the Rings. There are definitely symbols, metaphors, Christ figures, etc. throughout the Lord of the Rings. But as J.R. Tolkien said over and over and over again, it is not an allegory. And it isn't an allegory in the strict sense. It's not. Um, Nevertheless, uh, Christians taught it as an allegory of Christ's love for the church and Jews as an allegory of Yahweh's love for Israel, uh, even down to the details. So, for example, the breasts of the Beloved's Bride and of the lover's bride, the beloved, in 4, 5, and chapter 7, verse 8, were interpreted by Jewish scholars as Moses and Aaron. <laughs> don't, don't tell that to your wife. And by Christian scholars as the Old and New Testaments, or the love of God and the love of neighbor. No, I don't think so. But they did that, uh, particularly... Standing out in this history is the, uh, the, the ancient scholar Origen, who surprisingly was known for taking things uh, a little more literal in other places. Origen this has nothing to do with the Song of Solomon. Well, kind of does. Uh, he read Jesus' uh, warning, you know, if your right hand offends you, cut it off. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. Well, apparently that wasn't the part that offended as far as he was concerned, origin and the legend is that he castrated himself um, in following Jesus. So you can't say he wasn't serious. Uh, there is a place for theological extension of the meaning of the Song of Songs. It is, it has, it's, it's a it's a work of literature as well as lyrical poetry. So it does have uh, symbolic and and metaphorical words in it and meanings but it also stands for something as a whole and we'll look at that and I'll explain that better um, but not before first understanding what it actually is and Solomon wrote it as but when you take it as as one thing that it is is it's a revelation from God and that all revelation is intended for our instruction and edification we want to look at it uh, in its entire context, not only in Scripture, but in the context of the nature and the revelation of God. I'll talk about more about that later. Another thing the song is not, it is not a drama. Um, that is one thing that some mon- modern, modern scholars have taken it so. Uh, the problem is, first of all, it doesn't really have a developed cast of characters. Um, complete anyway. Uh, the song lacks a plot, a developed storyline, story and many other markers of a drama, including stage directions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the argument is, will, will those have been lost? Well, the problem with that is the ancient Israel, Israelites, they didn't do drama. They, the Greeks did. Um, and so that usually goes along with taking a later date, you know, so that somehow or another it was influenced by the Greeks. So you can see how that scholarly stuff, though it sometimes sounds tedious, actually, is all linked together. The song was not originally written as a structured wedding ceremony. I mean, if you read it, it's it's not haphazard, but it goes through cycles and it's repetitious, and if you try to to do a wedding this way, it would be like a surrealistic dream sequence more so than a structured wedding, though it's probable that parts of it were probably sung at wedding ceremonies in, in Israelite weddings. Finally, uh, the song is also not what many take it as today, and it's taught as, as a sort of marriage manual. Uh, Roberta and I uh, once went to a video class at a previous church, long ago, but not so far away, which presented the song as just that. Uh, it was a series of videos we watched. I mean, they weren't bad. Uh, the video speaker himself had some true observations and some good advice about marriage. Uh, he just didn't get those from the Song of Songs. Uh, an observation that I actually made to Roberta at the time, I said, well, that, that's true, but that's not what it says. Um, the, the song does teach, but it's not like in a structured seminar-like fashion. Uh, uh, lyrical poetry does teach, but not with didactic content. If you want that, you go to Paul, um, or, or you go to some other books of the Bible that, that are more direct teaching. Uh, lyrical poetry, poetry in general, uh, teaches by expressing sensibilities And by evoking and guiding thoughts and feelings, it it teaches us by example and by evocation what it means to be human in this particular situation and scenario. Uh, All good poetry does that. Um, Anyway. So the Song of Songs is exactly what it appears to be, a love song looks like a love song and it walks like a love song and it quacks like a love song. Maybe it's a love song. Uh, The song celebrates the romance, intimacy, marriage, and sexual union of a young man and a young woman. Uh, The lover uh, and his beloved. It expresses sexual intimacy with symbol and metaphor, some of which I'll, I'll get into when we, next week, when we start to look at the thematics and read some of the scriptures, uh, it does it, it expresses sexual intimacy with symbol and metaphor in a nuanced and subtle way without crudity, vulgarity, or tawdriness. It's not cheap or vulgar in any way. The song has an Edenic quality, Edenic meaning from the Garden of Eden. And what I mean by that, it's, it's like a picture of true romance as though the fall had never happened, and that's the subtitle that I gave the study. It's True Romance, and I also think that's a key, calling it True Romance. It's a key to understanding its theological implications, and we'll get to that later on, too. The song is also wisdom literature. Some don't count it as wisdom literature, if you... If you buy uh, or you read and look at introductions to wisdom literature, they they frequently leave out the Song of Solomon because it doesn't fit the genre in the sense that it's didactic. Even Ecclesiastes is pretty didactic. It looks like wisdom literature. But um, so... Dr. Dwayne Garrett, the Old Testament scholar uh, who's, who's here in town over at the Baptist seminary. Uh, his, by the way, his commentary on wisdom literature, he does everything but Job, is actually one of the best I've ever read. And he, just, he didn't pay me to say that, just so you know. And If you're going to buy one scholarly commentary on wisdom literature, I'd strongly recommend. But he says it's wisdom literature because it celebrates love, but it also teaches love. But he also recognizes it and it teaches it in the way that lyrical poetry does. What is the structure of the song? Well, I've said it isn't a story, and it isn't. It doesn't have a beginning, middle, and ending. It doesn't really have a plot, so to say, but it has a central focus right close to the middle of the psalm. But instead of going from beginning to end, it kind of goes from... I mean, you don't read it that way, but it kind of goes from both ends into the middle. And I'll mention that in just a second, too. So the structure of the song has has three interweaving parts. The man uh, who is... If if you have the NIV text... (coughs) I should have checked the ESV, too. It'll label when the man is speaking, the lover... Uh, The Beloved, who is the woman, and in the NIV, it'll say the Beloved. Um, All modern translations do this. I'm not sure exactly of the designation. And then in the, hmm? In ESV, it's he, others, and she. Okay, and the others in the NIV is the friends who are sometimes but not always indicated as the daughters of Jerusalem. Uh, and they act as a chorus not exactly like a Greek chorus but uh, and they offer encouragement and commentary um, and so again it, it is it is a lot like a modern love song a complex and deep one so to speak um, which, which sort of cycles through scenes but doesn't necessarily have a beginning middle, and ending some songs do have beginning middle, and endings though but it those are ballads. This is this is not a ballad. So it's not a chronological story, but it's also not haphazardly arranged. The themes and the symbols of the song cycle both toward and outward from the center of the song, which is verses four, sixteen, and five one, uh, which I'll read later when we when we get to looking at that theme where the intimacy of the lover and the beloved is consummated within their marriage. It, it is a literary, uh, a, a epic, not epic, a lyrical poetic expression of sexual intercourse. The lover is likely not Solomon himself, but meant to be every man. So as Garrett puts it, in love every groom, he's waxing poetic here. Uh, Dr. Garrett is. In love, every groom is King Solomon, a shepherd, and even a gazelle. And every bride is a princess and a country maiden. And isn't that true? Okay. Um, the central theme of the song, uh, what are the themes of the song? central theme is the love felt between a man and a woman as they approach and experience their wedding, as Dr. Garrett notes, as well as its consummation. Uh, it's, it's, it's the wedding and the wedding night, or whenever it was in ancient Israelite. That would be an interesting adjunct study, is studying ancient Israelite wedding and marriage customs, something I didn't take the time to do, just so you know. Uh, In this study, uh, we'll explore that main idea as we look at the subordinate themes, the main subordinate themes, themes that uh, if you've ever been in love, you know these themes uh, well. Um, Just go back and look through your old love letters if you save them. Uh, Longing and anticipation, uh, mutual desire, attraction, and admiration. The frustrations of love, uh, the exclusivity of love, I am my beloved's and he, I am my lover's and he is mine. And then the beauty of love, uh, it's exquisite fairness. Okay, well we'll end a little early, so I hope you have a lot of questions. What are the purpose and the message of the song? We'll anticipate our inclusion a little bit in this, but I'll get more into these points uh, two, three, in three, three or four weeks, whenever the last session is, uh, or maybe the next to the last one. So the the primary purpose of the Song of Songs, in its place in Scripture, is to celebrate, to establish and celebrate the goodness, beauty, joy, and passion of physical love and intimacy in the context of marriage. Uh, There's no mention of procreation in the Song of Solomon. Uh, There's no explanation for the beauty, joy, and passion of sexual intimacy other, other than the love itself and the love between a man and a woman. This is not to say that it's not meant to be about that, but certainly the Song of Solomon and the whole scheme of revelation, both natural and and, uh, special, indicates that sex wasn't simply meant to be all about procreation. That wasn't its only reason. So the song presents sexuality in itself as a good gift of God, in Doctor Garrett's words, a good gift of God, protected, quote, protected by marriage, and not an evil thing made permissible by marriage, um, which the ter- church, unfortunately, also taught for hundreds and hundreds of years. Maybe not starting with Augustine, but he popularized it that that sexual intercourse, marriage, was simply a concession. To make se- sexual intercourse acceptable because after the fall he argued uh, it was impossible for uh, humans to have sex without quote concupiscence which is sexual desire <laughs> um, of, and and he's right it's not but the point is it's not wrong uh, now there is a difference between lust and sexual desire of course and and it is also true that in a fallen world uh, you cannot simply uh, extract that from a human being. That's why I say, <clears throat> so our our marriages are never going to be perfect. Uh, that's why I say there's an Edenic, uh, almost pre-fallen ambiance in the Song of Songs. Other than a little frustration and not being able to be together, no sin really mars the relationship between the lover and the beloved. Um, So that that marriage is a good thing, uh, protected by marriage, uh, is true even after the fall and even with the reality of sin. In presenting marriage as it ought to be, and sexual intimacy as it ought to be in its original design... The Song of Song shows marriage as an earthly institution that in itself images something greater than itself, just as the human being who is created in the image of God images something greater than him or herself. Uh, Old Testament scholar Dennis Kinlaw argues for this. Um, when he says that, an earthly institution that in itself images something greater than itself. In the final session of our study we're going to look more closely at what that greater than itself is that the Song of Songs is imaging. And starting next week we'll start looking at those the central themes and the subordinate themes as we look a little more closely at the Song of Songs. does anybody have any questions? What kind of questions have you got? Has anybody ever thought about it the way I've been no, presenting no, I mean, it? There's, yes, there's nothing original in no, this. I, there's uh, something
1: striking, or it seems strikingly sort of a counterpoint to
0: Ecclesiastes. Um, yeah, Solomon was a complex man. Um, and Of course, he does say in Ecclesiastes, you know, enjoy life with your wife. This this might be the lesson on how to enjoy life with your wife. Um, I'm of the opinion, there's no proof in this, although others have conjectured that, that Solomon uh, wrote Ecclesiastes. Uh, it, it says in Kings, when he got old, his wives led him astray to other gods. You know, he experienced what it means to sort of neg- neglect God and become secularized and experience the... Uh, anxiety and emptiness and depression thereby and then he sort of repented and uh, still realized what a fool he'd been but then he wrote Ecclesiastes. I don't know that. I just, that just makes sense. And perhaps he wrote Song of Solomon at his younger age. Now that's just sort of a psychological explanation. They're both scripture. So they both look at life but from different perspectives. Uh, if you could say Ecclesiastes is life from fallen uh, perspective, and Song of Solomon is is well, gee, what if the fall hadn't happened? Not quite like that, but almost. And I again, I'm not the only person to observe this. Again, just so you know, there is nothing original in anything I say. So it's all well, the part part Paul McCartney made. Any other questions? Lou?
1: So there's a modern um, maybe desire amongst certain Christians to sort of like walk back the historically held sexual ethic to say like, well maybe you don't have to be married to have sex as long as you love them and are committed, right? So I don't ask that question completely coming from that place, um, but how how explicit is the song when it comes to saying hey what i'm talking about here is within the context of marriage
0: well it doesn't make a point of of being morality teaching but the the beloved is called the bride repeatedly um and uh, it, it, almost every scholar for very few there there are a few from the spectrum from liberal over conservative and and extremes on both ends say, well, th- this is about a married couple approaching their their wedding night, um, their wedding and their wedding night. And as far as that ethic is concerned, I'll just say, you know, just say no to that sexual ethic. Um, it, it's a little, I know what you're talking about. Uh, it's, it's actually even worse than that. Um, uh, there's a, a movement even in Anglicanism, to legitimize uh, same-sex attraction. Supposedly, you can divorce that from from the behavior and say, "Well, you can be a faithful that that, that the attraction itself is not sin." But yeah, it is sin. You know, I, this one of the things. It's it's a, a sidetrack on what we've been studying on Wednesday night, but that the, the Doctor Truman who stayed focused didn't. But one of the other things of the psychologized self is exp- and and, and uh, expressive individuality was is the idea that you know feelings are neither good nor bad. Well, yeah, they are. <laughs> that, that sometimes they're really bad, and you shouldn't have those feelings. And sometimes they're really good, and you should have those feelings. Um, and so to to lust, that, that's a bad feeling. Um, and if it's for, doesn't matter who it's for, if you're looking to have sexual relations outside of married context, that's, that's bad. But feeling anger for no good reason. Even Jesus said that was wrong. So there's a psychologizing, and it applies to sexuality, and it's, it's all become about uh, love has been redefined simply as sexual desire. It's more than that. Um, even, even in the song, which focuses on it, Love is more than sexual desire, but we know from the whole context of Scripture that that sex isn't the be all and end all of love. And you know, <clears throat> got to be careful with questions like that because I forgot your original question. That's all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but as a matter of fact, Song of Solomon does not teach sexual morality uh, except with respect to uh, this is meant. I mean, marriage comes from Genesis. Uh, Chapter 2, uh, the, and, and all the way, and Jesus affirms that. So, but it just says, you know, in its right context, this is how great it can really be. Uh, as though the world had not fallen, and Paul and the law and, and the prophets to say, well, yeah, the world is fallen, and this is what you need to do with sex in regard to that. But I'm not going to do that. I'm really going to try and stick with what the song says. So, but now you know where my morality is. So that was a good question. Thanks. Do
1: you have time for one more?
0: Yeah. All right. I think so. One. Don't we? Does anybody have? What time is it? Yeah, okay. Well, if you have kids, you know, I, you might want to go get them. Yeah. Right, well, you, well, you have I'll, kids. I'll, go I'll ahead. Ask <laughs> I'll ask
1: quickly. Um, and I'm probably skipping ahead here because we're only in week one, but is there, um, or how do we square Solomon saying this about the bride and, and the husband and how, the power of the love between them when he's, he had a lot of brides, right? He did.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why, that's a good question, and, and I, I, I know how I square it in the context of the whole scripture. I don't know how to add it either. <clears throat> squared inside Solomon's mind. Um, A lot of his, I mean, he had a harem in the sense that he had a lot of women. How how often he had sex with them, I don't know. Um, I'll bet he had one true love. I don't know that. Um, In the context of the canon of scripture, uh, we we can understand it uh, better than we can if we try and get in in Solomon's mind. you know how does he square well? You know I've had a lot of women. Women. He really is writing, though. Of course, he was the wisest man on earth of what it means to have an exclusive, true love. Um, uh, how he felt about that psychologically, I don't know. But a lot of his marriages were arranged, diplomatic. Um, you know, he kept them in the ho- in, in the in the palace there. I'm sure he played the field. Uh, that's one thing that was a concession to human weakness, polygamy. Polygamy was not condemned in the Old Testament. Now Paul says, uh, well, if you want to be a leader in the church, you got to be the husband and one wife. So, um, uh, Which I take as a reference to polygamy, not necessarily divorce, although I could be wrong about that. I'd have to go study it. Any other... Any other questions about that? Okay. Well, next week we're we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the particulars and themes of Song of Solomon. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you.